Welcome back to another episode of the Church Tech and Leadership Podcast. We are really glad you've decided to join us today. Um, our goal is to help you create quality experiences that help people engage with Jesus. Um, if this content helps you out, you can go ahead and share it or leave a rating and review, and that helps helps us go further and help more people. Uh, I'm your host, Chris Esslinger, and I'm joined once again by my good friends, Ian Springer and Will Scott. How's it going, guys? Great. Another beautiful day in the neighborhood. You know it. Uh, today, we are just going to geek out. This is kind of a, a new idea I had recently where um, the three of us talk quite often about uh, the new things that we're learning or new techniques. Um, and so we thought we would just share a few of those, and we'll probably do this on a semi-regular basis. Um, so... Uh, that being said, um, one of the things that I have been seeing a lot of recently is looking at how um, studio techniques, uh, recording studio techniques, can tie into what we're doing live. As we look at um, the world of what we're doing in, in audio, it's it's sort of changing in that you know broadcast all of a sudden has this really big emphasis in the church. Um, Normally, traditionally, the live engineers kind of think about things one way and studio engineers kind of think about things a different way. And it's because in live, you're just trying to um, take what's happening in a live performance and make it louder as to where in the studio you're you have time to be more creative and and artistic when it comes to what you're trying to do. So everybody kind of tends to think about things differently. Um, but what kind of occurred to me was that. Um, in doing broadcast, we're all of a sudden sort of trying to put together this recorded um, mix, like what somebody would expect if they, you know, pulled up an album and started listening to it. Um, that's kind of what what we're shooting for. And so I'm going, okay, well, I think we need to explore maybe bringing some of those studio techniques into, especially our live capture um, and even some of our processing. Uh, to really get the best overall sound. The other thing is, you know, PAs have come a really long way recently, and so we're seeing this massive increase in what sound for a large room can be. You know, it can actually be high fidelity now. Um, so that being said, you know, as I look at these studio techniques, I know that it means I have to set up... Um, I have to set up things a little bit differently with the PA to get it to sound correct um, so that what I do in the PA translates to online. So, so some of the things I've been looking at um, is uh, both sources and mics um, and those techniques because at the end of the day, those are the biggest things that matter. Um, recently at, at church, we got uh, a new snare drum and... I knew it was going to make a big difference, but the first day we actually put it in, I was just shocked um, by how much that one simple change of an instrument um, didn't even treat it differently uh, as far as audio goes, but literally just swapping out the instrument made this massive change in the overall way the mix felt and the overall way the band sounded. Um, I've also changed out a couple microphones recently, and just for fun, tried it without even changing any of the processing settings. And it totally changed the sound of those sources. Um, 
It was I remember, I remember you, uh, uh, Chris, Chris sent me a video of the two snares after he had tuned the new one and just on a crappy cell phone speaker, like with a crappy cell phone microphone and me listening to it back on my cell phone, like I could already hear the difference. Like it was night and day. It was, wow. it was so surprising to me. That's crazy. Yeah. It's, it's nuts, but it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, Chris, you mentioned like you listen on a lot of different sources. So like what kind of sources are you listening on? Yeah. Um, so what I was meaning there was was what the source is on the stage. So the drum mm. or the guitar or the vocal or whatever. Um, but now that brings up a good point is that um, when we're listening, we want to make sure that um, what we're mixing translates across multiple things. Um, because... You know, for me, my my front of house mix is also my broadcast mix, and there's some tricks there um, that I'm not going to get into right this minute to make that work. But I every week I go back and I review. Um, not only you know I was in the room at the time, so I know what that sounded like, but then I will check it on um, my iPhone speakers, on AirPods, on my studio monitors, in my car. Um, and I'll listen back to it and and make changes the following week based on what I heard. Um, and so what that kind of leads to is how do you get a mix to translate? Um, and so as I was I was watching some some videos on YouTube, I came across uh, some interviews with uh, Jack Joseph Puig and um, one of the big things he was talking about on that topic, uh, he said this quote, um, and it's the magic is in the mid range. Oh. And he defines that as 600 Hertz to three kilohertz. And so what he's kind of driving at is if you want it to translate across multiple speakers in multiple places, you want to really focus on that range first. You know, a lot of us want to reach for the highs and get that air or reach for the lows and really get it pumping. But not all speaker systems can reproduce those frequencies. And so, yeah, it may sound great on your studio monitors or in your room. But as soon as you take it to a less than ideal listening environment, a.k.a. phone speakers, AirPods, car, um, you're not even going to notice those things. What you are going to notice is the funkiness going on in that mid range. So, um, one of the things I've heard suggested, um, and I, I've played with this, some, um, is to actually do high pass and low pass, um, so that you're only working with your mid range and making that sound as good as you possibly can in that 600 to three K. Um, and then back out and treat your high and low. And what I found a lot of times is when you clean up that mid range first, you don't have to do as much on the far extremes because you've gotten that bad information out of the way. Um, or, you know, in some cases you've added clarity, um, you know, in, in live sound, I know, especially we, we talk a lot about subtractive EQ cause we're trying to eliminate problems. Um, but I would argue that in some cases, if we can get the PA really sounding amazing, and tuned well for the room and designed well and all those kind of things, it gives us the freedom to be able to do um, more tone shaping than just problem solving. You know what I mean? Mm, that's good stuff. Um, and so to the kind final of kind of piece of, of something that I heard said, uh, again, by the by same guy, um, was he likes to use 
um, dynamics and compression to control timing more so than you know just being a level control because that's what a lot of us tend to use it for is okay i don't want to chase the fader constantly or i want more um, punch out of this source but he was saying using the attack and release to actually control um in controlling how much transient comes through or when it comes through um, you can actually help line up instruments that may not be exactly in time you know if the drummer is like right on the beat but the bass player is laid back a little bit um, you can kind of mask that transient of the bass and really let the kick drum carry it and then you get this nice punch with the kick and then you get this tone following it so um, just going that extra step and thinking about attack and release as a timing thing um, has kind of been a really interesting, interesting experiment for me. So, yeah. No, that's that's some that's some next level compression stuff right there, and it uh, I think it takes quite a bit of ear training and practice, and it's like, you know, what is turning all the knobs this direction on a vocal sound like what does it sound like on a snare drum what does it sound like on a bass guitar and then you know change the settings and do it all over again so you realize what uh your your attack your release your threshold uh there was oh gosh i think i read it um i can't remember the author's name but there's a book out there called mix with your mind he's a studio engineer out of australia and he talks about like setting up your compression settings based uh using art i think the the first thing you do is like you set the threshold really low but you're adjusting the attack the attack you're trying to find the attack so like a is the attack and then you uh, play with the release so that you're really listening to those timing settings first and then and then you go back and get your threshold so you're you're really listening to what the compressor is doing to the sound instead of just trying to clamp down on something and, and he was just again he was a studio engineer so he's uh, he was doing it for that purpose, and sometimes we can't do that in live environments, but sometimes we can with a with a nice, well-rounded PA that is tuned properly. There's uh, there's a lot more creativity we can do. Yeah, um, I I think one of the pitfalls I've seen a lot recently, especially with the kind of entry level um, digital consoles, is there's an auto button for attack and release. Um, <laughs> I think that's such a problem because. You know, for me, when I'm using compression, those have become the the biggest two controls. You know, um, mm -hmm. like yeah, you got to get your ratio and your threshold right, like for sure. Yeah. Well, and but if you don't get the attack and release right, it's never going to sound good. Yeah. The um, uh, well, and just to piggyback off of something else you said, Chris, was um, uh, you said the money or the the magic is in the mid range, and man, that. That that like that is so true. Like you you nailed that to a T. Um, but another th like an exercise I was reminded of is like when's the last time you went back and like do your um, oh gosh graphic EQ so it's like third octave EQ or something like that and you're just uh, you know listen to a good reference source or something. And it's not a bad idea to even like do do this on good headphones, do this on some quality near fields or studio monitors, but also do it in your room because you might notice some nuances in your room. But just take it, listen to some music that you know really well, and just boop it up. Just you know, boop up each individual fader, each individual octave or third octave, and and listen, see see what you hear. What you, it's like? Oh, actually, the bass is way down there. It's not. 
it's not quite where I thought it was. Or, you know, the vocals are kind of in these two places and there's this other space in between them that's actually kind of where the guitars are sort of coming through. And then, um, you know, maybe try and create that, recreate that with your mix. Um, try and, you know, use your high-pass, low-pass filters so that your mid-range is dialed in really well because it, it just gets crowded uh, in the mid-range and if you don't have it uh, dialed in, then it's it's not going to be great. But let's uh, let's ask Ian. How about some uh, some video stuff before we lose all the video people? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Maybe too late. You know? <laughs> <laughs> as soon as we said compressor, they were out. <laughs> yeah. Well, so the the you, you know something video. that uh, I've found really useful. Uh, I've been I've been working with this church where we've been uh, kind of revamping a lot of their uh, their lighting um, and. You know, I always thought like a light meter was something that guys that used film back in the day used to, you know, set their exposure, but it didn't really have a a place in the modern tech environment. And um, I, someone suggested that I use one for this uh, this project I was working on, and so I did, and actually was really surprised with how helpful it was. Um, it uh, to now where any time that I I need to focus lights or help with focusing lights, which is I think one of the the key components of good video is having your subject lit well. Um, I I'm reaching for my light meter to see you know where where am I at? Is do we have because you know you're you're dealing with um, in a lot of environments um you might want to have a certain amount of iris on your uh on your lens so that you get that narrow depth of field look um this particular church i was working with they have some eng style cameras and so they want to be able to run their iris wide open so that they get as narrow of, of a depth of field get getting the the background behind the guy who's preaching on stage as soft as they possibly can. Um, and so the way to do that is using a light meter, working with the lighting guy when we're doing our focus, make sure that we get everything as even as we can across the stage and tweak the level that the lights are set at to get it just right for what's going into the camera. And it, it completely changes the game. Just that little extra precision versus kind of eyeballing it, um, at least for me, has really changed the game for getting that extra little bit of of quality out of um, the cameras we're trying to use. That's so good. I was recently watching a um, presentation that Ari had put on where they were actually... Um, talking about dynamic range of cameras, um, but in that the guy that was kind of running the the clinic that that they were filming, um, he had every single shot. He was taking out a light meter and holding it next to the subject's face, um, and then it would tell him, "Okay, you know, you need to set your camera right at this level. You need X number of stops um, of of iris and everything else." Um, and you're right, Ian. Like that, using those tools has become such a, a big deal. Um, it takes all the guesswork out of it. Like no longer do you have to 
go, oh no, what should I set my camera at? Or, well, that's not quite the right look. Uh, just crank the gain up to get it brighter or crank the ISO up to get it brighter depending on the style of camera you're using. And, and that adds all kinds of issues when, when in reality, you know, just like what I was saying with audio is we got to fix it at the source. Um, and and really uh, improve what the camera is seeing, and it does. It makes it way easier when you can hold a meter up and it and it'll tell you, okay, you need to set your ISO or your gain at, you know, this number, and you need to set your iris at this number, and it'll be perfectly exposed. I mean, it just makes life easy. Yeah. No, that's that makes a lot of sense. I heard something similar this past week, um, but which. Like we had never the Ian you had talked about having a little bit of softening up the the death perception of your subject with the iris all the way open. Like we that was actually a problem for us this this past week. We were trying to figure out why is it soft? Why is it soft? Why is it soft? And that's because of how our lighting was interacting with the subject. And like uh, our video guy had dug into it and he's really he's like ah that's because the iris is all the all the way open because we were trying to get it uh, a little bit sharper and so once we had backed off that uh, that iris and just kind of changed things a little bit and adjusted lighting it's like ah now it's now it's where we want it but apparently that was that's like a, a cinema thing like if you want really sharp subjects you usually back off the iris a little bit and then um, if you're if you're yeah going for more of a softer than you have it all the way open, like you said, which well, is like, a, uh, that's yeah, the go thing ahead. with most kinds of lenses actually. Yeah. Um, which it, I, I had never heard before. It blew my mind. <laughs> yeah. That's actually, um, Chris and I were working on a project about a year ago that, uh, we ran into that, that same issue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, again, I, I just think that, that having that kind of meter really helps you, get the look you're going for um of course you have to know what that is going in um whether you want that really cinematic um what we call bokeh blurred background and sharp subject or do you want uh everything to kind of be equally in focus um, what what i what i like to do with people is go through and shoot you know try and find somebody like a volunteer and just say, hey, can you just kind of go chill on the stage for like a half hour or something while we try some stuff? Get somebody to go up there and do that and then shoot it um, like, you know, three or four different ways. Pick pick three or four different f-stops you want to you wanna use. Shoot it three or four different ways and then sit down with some of your people and say, hey, which of these do you think looks better? Because usually... Usually the look that people um, are most drawn to, depending on what kind of lenses you have, is somewhere in between having your iris all the way open and just getting the background as soft as you can and going for a really, really sharp image. And some people tend to go to one extreme or the other, yeah. at least with their setup. Yeah. No, I, I like what you said there in like having different options and then you as the video director aren't like you're not the one who is like it's a collaboration. It's it's not your video experience. You're responsible for creating it. But now that you have different options for the team so you can have your 
you know, we can experience director or whoever is in charge of that. Like, it's like they can see it and you can collaborate and make a decision as a team. And the same is true with audio. It's, it's, um, one of the absolutely essential tools. And I think we've said this before is virtual sound check. Like that is how you rehearse as an audio guy. And when's the last time you rehearsed, like, you know, do your virtual playback with the guy, you know, with your team in the room and, and them telling you, you know, giving you feedback on your mix. Like, hey, do you do you want the vocals more up front? Do you want them buried? Do you want, you know, the, as the drum sounds, you know, just uh, talking about space and panning or depth of field, like all these all these kinds of things that go into the acoustic environment. Um, it's like, yeah, you as the audio guy, you're responsible for executing it, but your mix may not be your church's mix. So uh, you you, ha- you kind of have to hold that gingerly and it helps to have collaboration because then you know, it's like, ah, this is, you know, this is what my boss, this is what the music director, this is what the uh, production manager, whatever is, uh, is, or, you know, it could even be the lead pastor. You know, he might have an opinion on SPL. So those are all important conversations to have and things that you can address without an audience in the room. And, um, you know, you can do that during the week or in the evening. So if you're a volunteer, if, if that's that way, you don't have the pressure of a Sunday morning. So it's absolutely essential tool. Yeah. No, I, I think you hit a, a vital point there, Will, that we, you have to know what the vision is that you're going for. Um, and I, I can think of multiple times where I've seen where the, the senior leadership has one idea of, of what church should be. And then the tech crew has a different idea of what's cool or what um, they think would look good or what they think would make them look good. Um, and and, if and those, those expectations aren't communicated, there's conflict. Yeah. So, so for those of you who uh, haven't um, developed a relationship with uh, your senior leader or your senior leadership team, uh, I'd strongly recommend asking uh, if you can go to lunch or coffee or something like that and just, uh, you know, let them know up front, like, hey, I'm just trying to better understand what it is that that our vision is as a church so that we can better uh, help support and communicate that out. Uh, and that goes a really long way. I'm, I'm really fortunate to have a great relationship with my senior pastor and I get to hang out with him all the time. Um, but we were just talking the other day as we were doing a video shoot um, how nice that integration has been between uh, what we do in the technical world um, and and what it is that that leadership is trying to communicate um, and making sure that we're doing it in such a way that it comes through crystal clear. Mm, yeah, good stuff. So uh, something as as we're kind of getting back into geeking out here a little bit is um, that I've recently picked up was so in as as we're trying to create these studio quality mixes in audio world. Um, one of the things that you have in the studio that you don't necessarily have on live consoles is being able to manipulate your signal chain as far as sequencing. Do I want, you know, where, where the high pass filter goes, where the EQ goes, where the compression goes, um, you know, and how all of those things interact together because most, uh, audio consoles, it's kind of fixed. I mean, there's, there's place for inserts and plugins, but those are also, depending on how the console's laid out, you know, you may not necessarily be able to adjust where those 
inserts are, or if you, if you like, let's say you have two insert slots, but those have to be at the same point in the signal chain. Um, now, again, you can't customize your signal chain as much as you can in the studio, where everything is usually analog and you can route things in any order that you want. And uh, if you talk to a guitar player, that's kind of a like that, like, because uh, we were talking about this with our team last week, and they, that kind of like they didn't realize that they, they blew their mind because guitar players like their sound is 100% based on their signal chain and how they manipulate it. And so if we're trying to create these studio quality experiences with our live consoles that have these limitations, now's the part where you as an audio guy get to kind of be creative and figure out, okay, how can I, how can I get my ideal signal chain signal chain using the resources that I have? Um, I know most consoles, again, so you've got those fixed elements like this is, it goes EQ, then compression, then, well, okay, it goes like preamp, high pass filter, uh, EQ, compression, and you might have one or two slots for like, it could be a compressor or a de-esser or an expander or an, a ducker, you know, pick your, pick your poison. And, uh, but it's like, okay, how, how do you, how do you adjust that? So one of the things that I recently uh, discovered was like okay, vocal chain kind of important, um, but just a little, yeah, just a little, <laughs> kind of like you, you know you got to be able to hear the vocal and you want it to uh, to be the foremost thing. It's like people don't walk out singing the kick drum with lighting cues; they they walk out singing the vocal lines. So you got to make sure it sounds good. I could just see it now. Somebody walking out of the auditorium, boom, boom, boom. boom, boom. <laughs> uh, you know that might be the audio guy. <laughs> usually is <laughs> if anybody's going to be doing it that's that's who's going to do it yeah no you're right man but so the vocal chain is uh i know a lot of consoles have all these um aux outputs or these buses that or mix outputs you know everybody kind of calls them something different but if um if you aren't if you if you don't have to worry about like uh phase coherency or, or, or time alignment. Like if you're trying to do parallel compression, that's a whole different thing. But if you are just kind of getting from A to B, if you have, all right, so your vocal channel comes in and, you know, you, you hit your preamp, you set your gain levels, all that good stuff. And that's a whole nother uh, topic is, uh, is setting your gain levels. But then you hit your um, high pass filter. Then you, the first EQ because again, I can't choose when the compression happens and when the EQ happens. So the first EQ is going to be corrective EQ. That's going to be the subtractive EQ that Chris was talking about to clean things up and get rid of anything that I don't want. Then I'm going to go into some compression and that might be fairly heavy compression to try and uh, just try and balance things out a little bit. And then, then I'll probably like, then I'll go to a de-esser because that compressor is going to bring up a lot of that sibilance and a lot of that you know, just shimmery stuff that you don't really want because it's just, it's usually pretty harsh and distracting. Uh, so then you'll, you know, go through a DS and it's like, well, I'm now I'm out of things. Like I can't, I don't like that. Then it goes to the fader. Well, yes, then it goes to the fader, but send it to a mix bus post fader or send it, you know, pre feet, pre fader and set that fader to zero and don't send that channel output to your mains. Just send that channel output to another mix bus if it's available, because most of us have spare mix buses. Some of us don't, and then do Depends some more on processing. You have a monitor board or not? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, if you're sharing your in ears on the front house desk, 
Um, but if inside that mix bus, now it's like, okay, now you're hitting another EQ. Now you're hitting some more compressions. Like, okay, so that's, that's where I do my tonal shaping. That's where I'll do a little bit of boosting to add some magic because all the compressions kind of already been done. So I'm, I'm adjusting the, the EQ or something like that. Well, and let's say you want to hit it with another compressor. That's going to add a little bit of harmonic distortion, like an LA two a, if you, you know, if you're on like one of the Yamaha CLQL consoles, they've got those built in, uh, processors and an LA two a kind of sounds pretty good on a vocal. Uh, it, adds, it definitely adds a lot of warmth. Uh, and, so you you know run it through an LA2A and then then maybe run it through some additive EQ to just kind of add some sparkle or add some tonality or something like that. Um, so I've recently like redid my whole vocal chain and then obviously then you go to the stereo bus and the main out. But I've redone my vocal chain. I did that with my bass chain. It's like where the first part of the first the channel is where I'm doing corrective EQ and the mix bus is where I'm doing tonal shaping. Uh, and that that makes a lot of sense, especially if you're combining sources. Like we have, uh, I'll double patch the bass channel, and you know one will be super duper compressed and very dirty and grungy, and the other one will be a little slower attack to try and let the transients through. But they're both going to the same mix bus, and then I'll do some more tonal shaping on the mix bus. But there's there's lots of options and ways that you can be creative. Like just like an artist is creative with their pedal boards, or you know. Um, as a vocalist does uh, practicing different runs and things like that you as uh, an audio guy you have to be creative and you have to use the tools that you have uh, to get this the well to get the results that you want because it's your job to create that that quality mix yeah i i will you know iterate that it is a a big deal to know what the things do before you start stacking them um You really need to take some time to get to know the tools, um, if you haven't already. Um, Virtual sound check. Yeah. Well, one of the other cool things that I've seen, um, you know, in the studio, like you said, this is so easy because you just, you know, switch the order of your plugins or switch the order of your analog gear, um, is doing dynamics processing before uh, you EQ, um, just because it gives a different. Um, a totally different feel. A different feel, but it can it can actually help with some of your tonal issues. Um, you know, if you think about it, and I think there's a few digital you know live consoles that'll allow you to flip them. Um, but one of the really interesting things that I've discovered recently is that you can, if you compress first, it actually can help to deal with some of those weird frequencies that might be you know, a little overbearing um, because the compressor is going to clamp down on everything. But if it's the loudest piece, you know, if, if you think about, you know, a flat line and a compressor hitting that, it's all going to come down evenly. But um, if you think about like a line that's got some bumps in it uh, and the, and the, and the ceiling starts coming down, well, those bumps are going to get pushed down harder than the flat line is, you know, the base. Uh, So, um, using that compression to actually even out some of those uh, tonal issues before you even hit EQ can give you options as far as not having to do either as much corrective EQ or doing more uh, creative tone shaping if you need it, you know, Mm -hmm. on the backside. So it's just, even in the most simple terms, I'm not saying you should always compress first or you should always do EQ first. It kind of depends on the issue you're dealing with, which means you need to listen to the source um, 
first, you know, get, get that source sounding great in and of itself and then go, okay, what does this need before you start turning on various pieces to manipulate it? Oh yeah, definitely. And there's, um, uh, listening to some of these like, uh, tour, these guys who are on tour all the time, they'll go into these music rehearsals with their input list and, and then they'll actually hear the instruments like the drum kit and, and decide, Oh, whoa. Yeah. That mic's definitely not the right one because, and quite frankly, your microphone is your first line of defense. It's the first thing that does any kind of EQ correction for you. Like it's working for you. Uh, cause each mic has like filters that it puts it through because of just the physics behind the thing and how it's made. But if, um, so mic choice is an, another huge important part of what you're doing. I know every week, uh, like we have, a we have a nice little collection of capsules that we get to use, uh, for a weekend. So it's like, Oh, I know I've got this female vocal and I've got this guy singing. Well, I know this female vocal, she can be a little harsh, uh, when she hits those high ends. So I'm going to grab the, you know, the, I'm going to grab this capsule instead of that one. And there's, there's a handful of capsules out there that are, they're pretty reasonable and affordable. Um, but I mean, don't get me wrong, a, a 58, like you, that's usually, you can't really go wrong with a 58. It's a good place to start. If you like, if you can't have a collection of capsules, but if you can try and match the capsule to the vocal, um, and that, that'll actually help you move in the right direction before you even touch a fader or turn a knob. Yeah. Ian, is there anything equivalent in video land to, uh, to some of the filtering we're talking about? Well, um, I guess it's a little bit different. I mean, you, so you've got, uh, color matrices and gamma matrices on a lot of cameras that let you fine tune how the camera responds to color and color at different uh, luminescent values or color at different values related to other color called a chroma phase. Um, And that's, so what, uh, what happens a lot of times with newer cameras is um, unless you have, you know, really high-end um, cinema or broadcast-grade cameras, you don't get to touch any of those kind of settings individually. Most of the time, you know, the manufacturer will give you, you know, a half dozen or so presets like Cine or um, Standard Def or Extended Dynamic Range that kind of stuff and what but that's what all that preset does is just kind of manipulate some of that stuff on the back end and one of the things you get with some of the higher end cameras is the ability to tweak that so you can get a nice chip chart and a vector scope and really kind of fine tune out the some of the differences between different cameras um, that way but the the thing that's different on the video side is the fact that it's not um, the the um, amount of control that you have varies drastically over the spectrum of you know say like a, a two or three thousand dollar camera to a, a thirty or forty thousand dollar camera. Whereas like you know if you go and get it, even the most entry level audio mixers 
we'll still have some basic low, mid, high EQ. It's not going to be, but it's not going to be a full parametric. Um, and definitely, you know, you're going to need something external to use plugins on. Um, the most basic cameras don't even uh, give you that. So I guess that's what I would say the equivalent is on the video side. Is there like are there plugins for cameras? Can I can I slap an LA two A on a on a camera? Uh, kind of. Um, so you can get you you, you get what's called LUTs, um, which is uh, LUT is an acronym for lookup table. Basically, what it does is it provides you you with a way like you can go into um, software like Resolve and do a color grade to something, and it provides a way a way to make that color grade portable. So you can use something called a LUT box, or some of the higher end switchers will let you just drop this um, right in, and uh, it will let you apply the color grade directly to your um, input. An interesting kind of trick that some people use with these is for stage TVs. Um, TVs are notoriously hard to get to match up with a camera right from a color standpoint, especially if you have um, stage lighting. So most of the time your stage lighting, unless you're using um, like half CTB gels in your lighting, you're going to end up at a different white point than what's on the TV. So it makes all the white text that ends up on your teaching TV looking a little bit blue. So what people will do is they'll take and um, point a camera at the stage, put uh, a test pattern up on the TV, then take capture some footage, then take that footage into Resolve and color grade so that the TV looks right, then apply export that LUT and apply it to the LUT box, which then color grades your TV to match up with what the camera is seeing for um, the rest of the stage so that ever so that the white point and the the brightness and contrast on the TV and everything exactly matches what the camera is expecting to see Ian what kind of effect does that have on your skin tones what do you mean so if you're applying a LUT for how the TV looks is that not also going to affect uh, your skin tones or are you saying apply the LUT to the TV's signal before it hits the TV. Yeah, you're applying the LUT to the TV signal, so it's only affecting how the TV looks. Gotcha. That's that's a pretty cool idea. I have not heard that one before. Is there like so one of the ways that I I've always looked at that is trying to get everything on stage to all match as far as uh, white balance. I know on some of the higher end displays, not not so much consumer level TVs. It'll actually let you set a a white point based on, you know, real metrics, like, uh, actual color scale <laughs> Yes, versus like one to 50. Yeah, that's definitely a thing, but here's the tricky part. You can go out and get a consumer TV at best buy. That's a good, the right kind of size for a few hundred dollars. A lot box is going to be five or 600. Um, a professional monitor that's the same size is going to cost two or 3000. Just yeah. because of the the economics of scale, of how the manufacturers produce those things, and even and and the picture quality is going to be very close in between those two. 
So it's kind of a um, there. There's people in both schools of thought. There's a lot of people that say the best way to do it is to go out and get a high quality professional display and tune it using the tools that the manufacturer of that display gets you. Um, but there's also a lot that to be said for saying, well, you know, we can save a, a grand or so on this solution. And like in four or five years, if the TV goes out, we just go down to Best Buy and we get another one. And we still, we still have the same love box that we were using before. Whereas if you're, you know, $3,000, uh, professional grade display dies you know now it's it, it's a whole bunch of money that you got to spend or get it replaced so it, it's both you can i guess the, the point i'm trying to make is um you can get good results from both of those methods it, it's just a matter of what uh what kind of a process are you willing to go through and how much money do you have to spend for it yeah i think that can be uh carried over to most of the things that we do um, what other things are, are you guys uh, seeing right now or learning right now? Um, back to audio world. <laughs> the I'd say a new tool that I'm really exploring with um, is uh, so we I, we mix on Yamaha desks, you know, CLQL line, and um, we're one of the built-in plugins that the manufacturer gives you is the a lot of the Rupert Neve stuff. Um, they've got new Rupert Neve compressors and EQ, but they also have uh, what's called a 5045 primary primary source enhancer, which is the Black Magic box. The Black Magic box, man, it is. Uh, we I just I just tried it on my vocals this past weekend, and you have to be really careful. I mean, it's it's something you spend time with and get to. Uh, like you get, you gotta dial it in, spend spend some time dialing it in, especially during like sound check and rehearsals. But it basically is a gate that opens whenever it hears a human voice. So, but I mean, there's there's a time value, so you can choose how fast it opens and closes, and then a depth that kind of is like how much is it is it closing, how much is it like pushing out. But it if you have a noisy stage like us, we've got an open drum kit. Um, it significant especially when the vocal is off the mic because they're dancing around or something or you know who knows what um if they're getting off mic then all you get is like stage noise and like just this wall of stage noise and again if you're doing a lot of compression and cleaning up that vocal so it's nice and hot then you're gonna be cleaning like you're gonna get blasted with all that stage noise but this guy this 5045 really smooth that just uh it you know it opens this gate nice and smoothly for vocals and um it just it makes it a lot easier to kind of push your compressors a little harder and not have it ringing into feedback when the vocal goes off the mic i know um the trick i learned it was uh, i learned it from uh, oh gosh pooch pooch van hooten and uh chris raybold chris mixes for uh, Bruno Mars and Pooch mixes for Iron Maiden and they've both mixed for you know world-class acts and stuff like that but they use them for these artists who are running around all over stadiums with PA blasting everywhere and that's how they keep um, that's how they keep things out of the vocal mic yeah they, I think Neve makes a hardware 
unit of that as well. Oh yeah, I'm um, sure. I think I think that's what Chris is using is the hardware version. Yeah, but it it's it's a uh, game changer. It's a black magic box, that's for sure. It's like, what does this thing do? Well, it makes it better. <laughs> yeah. Well, and if you don't know, because the very first time I tried using it, like I didn't really understand what it was for, how how to use it. And it's like, uh, it just, I couldn't make it work or, uh, but that's cause I didn't spend enough time learning about it. And, uh, it's like, you've got these tools, learn how to use them, learn where to turn the knobs and what to do with things. Uh, and you will definitely pick up some tricks. Yeah. Ian, um, what else you got? Uh, so the, I, I've been playing around with this, this cool thing. It, at this church for the last couple weeks it's a uh radio to intercom bridge um and i i knew for years that this was a that it was a product that existed but i like i kind of always looked at it and was like you know when when would you ever really want to use that um and so this church like all of their production staff carry around radios so that they can all communicate on a weekend which is great their um their facility is really kind of spread out and they've got production people in multiple different areas it's not like where there's just kind of one front of house area where everybody's at there's three or four different areas where everybody is and so um we hooked up this bridge so that when i'm on com directing the show I can hear what's happening on radio and I can talk um, out on the radio. And that's been a huge game changer in terms of being able to like collaborate and um, communicate with, with the other guys that are on, on the team. It's if, if um, like, I think it's not a secret that good quality wireless uh, com is super expensive. Uh, you know, four or five channels of it can be, you know, as much as $5,000 for just a basic system. And you can go out and get halfway decent two-way radios at Best Buy for um, 50 or 60 bucks for a pair. And so if you've got guys that need to be able if you've hopefully you've already got some kind of a good comm system if you've got guys that need to be able to be mobile and can't be tied down to um, a headset and a belt pack this is a really great low-cost solution so that you can still get a hold of those people if you need to without having to text somebody and wait for them to look at their phone or try and call them and hope that they they see it and uh an answer it's just, it, it's at least for me it, I I think it's worth the the couple hundred bucks that the the interface boxes. Yeah, I I know for me it can be um, extremely hard to get a hold of me mid show sometimes, um, depending on you know what I'm doing. Um, if you're trying to get a hold of me on my phone, that's for sure. <laughs> Ian, we've experienced it, that a couple it, times. It's a lot easier to just be able to you know be like, Hey Chris, what the heck? what's going on? You know, that just works a lot better than, than having to call you 10 times. Yeah. Or more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that sounds like uh, there's a story behind that. Oh, there are many stories. There, it, it's a multiple instances type thing. 
Um, cool. On the video side, um, one of the other things that I saw recently was um, that uh, Bethel Church has started switching over to red cinema cameras for their broadcast purposes. Um, it's just kind of an interesting thing. You know, Ian was talking earlier about how, um, you know, we need to choose kind of a look that, that our, our people want. And, and those certainly give a specific look. It's definitely more cinematic and, and creative and those kind of things. Um, and there's some, some real positives doing it that way. But um, one of the other things I saw that they're doing is, is mostly handheld cameras. Um, as if you were trying to shoot, you know, a documentary or something, not an interview style thing or, you know, the ENG look or an electronic news gathering style look that we've had in no the past. No tripods. Yeah. Um, or very few tripods. And uh, it's just kind of a interesting thing to me to see kind of where video is going um, and, and how in church world we're, you know, in some ways trying to push through and break those norms of, okay, well, if you do a live event, then it's broadcast style. Um, so it's just kind of an interesting dynamic to me to look at. Um, and I, I'm still trying to figure out exactly, you know, what I'm going to take away from that as far as, am I going to incorporate some of that shooting style? Am I not? I mean, it's, it's pretty widely accepted that they're, you know, one of the best out there as far as their, their online service. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, just an interesting thing to look at. Yeah. No, it's always good to have, uh, resources that you're learning from, be it the, you know, the church up the road or, you know, or Bethel or somebody who's out on tour or professionals or, you know, what, what's Hollywood doing? I mean, heaven forbid we learn something, you know, heaven forbid God uses Hollywood, uh, in, in a way for his kingdom, which that was sarcasm, by the way, if it wasn't obvious enough. God always uses things for his purpose yeah. one way or another. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, hey, if this has impacted you or helped you out, uh, remember to share it with friends, share it with somebody that you think it would impact. Uh, you can also leave a rating and review. Um, you can always find more on all of these topics on the website. I know um, there's a blog post I did a little while back talking about broadcast mixing. Um, and we've also done a couple uh, posts on lighting and color balance. Um, so those are all there on the website at chrisslinger.com. Um, there are also show notes for this show. We, we talked about a couple of the things that we'll reference. Um, and, and finally, if you'd like some specific help in your context with, you know, improving what you're doing and really creating a quality experience for folks, um, we have our consulting services to so just reach out through the website. Um, if you have a topic request or a question, you can click the I have a question button at the top of the product, uh, at the top of the podcast page. And that's it. Thanks, guys. Bye.